Hello, welcome to the Quest series. My name is Alan Mulhern. This is the Crisis of Our Times, a mini-series within it. First, an announcement. There is still due a premium podcast, which will now be forthcoming, hopefully, in May. It's been delayed because of the pressure of the bi-weekly podcasts, which are requiring a lot of attention. As you know, the world situation is changing very rapidly. The Quest podcasts are committed to exploring the crisis of our time. Well, here we are. It has been the position of the Quest for many years that there are multiple crises emerging in the 21st century, for which I argue an interdisciplinary viewpoint is essential. Many people are deeply fearful of the present pandemic in 2020. That is only because it is now upon us, but it had been widely predicted. It seems there is a tendency in human beings to avoid seriously preparing for such disasters, while there is a serious disposition to prepare for war, that is, inflict disasters on others and ourselves. In a recent article of the Financial Times, 3rd of April 2020, Tim Harford wrote a penetrating piece entitled Why We Fail to Prepare for Disasters. He begins giving a lead-up to the New Orleans flooding disaster by Hurricane Katrina in 2005. He mentions local newspapers had pointed many times to the vulnerability of the city. The Federal Emergency Management Agency in early 2001 said that a major hurricane hitting New Orleans was one of the three most likely catastrophes facing the United States. In 2004, National Geographic suggested that 50,000 people could drown in the New Orleans area in a hurricane and the Red Cross reported likewise. In 2004, Hurricane Ivan looked as if it would fulfil that expectation but narrowly turned aside, missing the city. However, evacuation procedures were attempted and failed. It was a dress rehearsal for the real hurricane arrival. Further warnings were given of the inadequacy of crisis preparation. And then Hurricane Katrina did arrive in 2005, with the city still very unprepared. The event has been etched in the trauma memory of America. The authors, Bazerman and Watkins, in their 2004 book, Predictable Surprises, The Disasters You Should Have Seen Coming, say that the problem is not the unpredictability of crises, but that even when we expect them, we fail to prepare. Watkins actually ran simulations of a pandemic in 2002, and there have been many other simulations in different countries since that time. They all point to a great state of unpreparedness. One of the books that predicted this current pandemic was written as long ago as 1994 and is called The Coming Plague. Newly Emerging Diseases in a World Out of Balance, by Laurie Garrett. Its title fits in well with the Quest's viewpoint that it is an unbalanced world of our making that either causes directly or allows such crises to emerge. Other warnings famously included those of Bill Gates, one of which was a TED Talk in 2015, entitled The Next Outbreak, We're Not Ready. Two and a half million people had watched it by the end of 2019. In 2018, 
Ed Young, a science correspondent, wrote an article in The Atlantic entitled The Next Plague is Coming. Is America Ready? The World Health Organization and the World Bank created a monitoring group called the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, chaired by top people. In its first report in September 2019, it said, We ramp up efforts when there is a serious threat, then quickly forget about them when the threat subsides. It is well past time to act. It called for better preparation for managing the fallout of a high-impact respiratory pathogen. It noted that a pandemic, akin to the scale and virulence of the one in 1918, after the First World War, would cost the modern economy $3 trillion, which we now realise is a tremendous underestimate. We should mention also the near misses of SARS in 2003, two dangerous influenza epidemics in 2006 and 2009, Ebola in 2013, and MERS in 2015. Each deadly outbreak sparked brief and justifiable alarm, followed by a collective shrug of the shoulders, says Tim Harford. We were warned, both by the experts and by reality, yet on most fronts we were still caught unprepared. Why? Tim Harford obliges us with a summary as follows. We couldn't grasp the scale of the threat. We took complacent cues from each other, rather than digesting the logic of the reports from China and Italy. We retained a sunny optimism that no matter how bad things got, we personally would escape harm. We could not grasp what an exponentially growing epidemic really means, and our wishful thinking pushed us to look for reasons to ignore the danger. He concludes, the true failure, however, surely lies with our leaders. We are humble folk, minding our own business. Their business should be of safeguarding our welfare, advised by expert specialists. So here we have a dual problem. Apathy and denial in the population at large, plus the more serious problem of a gigantic failure of leadership. He ends his thought-provoking article by suggesting that the lesson of this pandemic is not simply that we ignored previous warnings, but that we are ignoring the warning that the coronavirus, COVID-19, constitutes. It is by no means the worst-case scenario of an epidemic which could be far more lethal. For example, one as contagious as measles, as virulent and damaging as Ebola, and that kills the young as well as the old. Imagine, as serious as it is, this pandemic is only a warning. The extension I make to the above well-made argument is that the pandemic is interlocking with other crises in a systemic manner. The pandemic is part of a larger system of crises which are emerging out of the world we have created. I believe the idea of an interconnected multidimensional crisis of our times is soundly argued and if so should be seriously considered. We need a new generation of leaders who should be widely educated in crisis and disaster theory and policy response. This argument and its hypotheses will accumulate evidence as we go forward. When the quest began in 2015, it was difficult for me to give contemporary evidence. 
the world economy was expanding. Currently, we have a health crisis which is clearly linked with an economic crisis of the first order, the emerging Great Global Depression. This, in turn, is interlinked with emerging political crises, also of the first order. For example, the threatened, indeed many say probable, breakup of the European Union. We all know the climate crisis is also very severe and will interlink with the others. So I think it is clear there is now plenty of evidence accumulating for our central argument of the interconnected crises and their magnitude. However, let us take for now one of these crises. Let us examine the optimistic and pessimistic scenarios for the world economy, remembering that there is no economic model that can provide truly accurate predictions when we have so many unknown variables. An optimistic scenario is that the pandemic will be largely controlled this year. That the temporary relief and support measures, fiscal and monetary policy, unprecedented in size in advanced economies, will stabilise things for the moment. That the lockdown is lifted, say, by early June. That there will be a sharp rebound of economic activity thereafter. That the developing world, by some miracle, escapes the full impact of the virus. Say, for example, the virus cannot flourish in very hot climates. Under this optimistic scenario, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, has recently suggested a contraction of 6.1% for advanced economies this year. Unemployment figures could rise to 20% later this year, while sharply recovering next year. This would be a deep recession involving significant bankruptcies and unemployment. If the lockdowns have to be extended beyond June 2020, however, and the virus returns in 2021, the overall damage could be twice as large, say 12-13% reduction in world GDP. However, authoritative though the IMF is, it is my experience that they are acutely aware of the dangers of sending destabilising signals. They have a political role to play. So they generally underestimate crises deliberately and stress the positive possibilities. Not exactly the best guidance in the current situation. The Brookings Institute, a prestigious American research institute and think tank, indicated that recovery would be much slower given the lack of a coordinated policy response from governments. It commented on a dangerous fracturing of international cooperation. Quote, this is further damaging business and consumer confidence, which are already in freefall. The United States economy has come to a virtual standstill. France, Germany and the UK face historic recessions as all indicators of activity and trade tumble. Unquote. However, I still think this is on the light side. A more realistic estimate of the damage in the UK was given very recently by the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, which forecast that by June 2020, UK output would be 25% lower than at the start of the year. That is, in half a year, a 25% drop in GDP, never before experienced. But then it anticipated recovery would begin in the second half of the year of 2020. 
it showed historically large declines across financial indicators, real economic data and confidence indicators in March, well before the worst effects on the economies of most countries. In other words, the contraction was already coming. These also are the kinds of figures used by Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley again in April 2020, our current period. But they are all expecting a sharp recovery in the later part of the year, thus modifying considerably the 25% drop in the first half. However, in my opinion, this is again on the light side. On an almost daily basis, the official prognoses are getting markedly worse. Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, speaking on a conference call to journalists on the 17th of April 2020, suggested Britain's economic plight might even be worse than the above. He indicated that already the economy had contracted 35% this year. That's in a quarter of a year. And that the prospects for a rapid recovery were remote. This is now shaping up to be far worse than the Great Depression of the 1930s. More pessimistic scenarios, however, can be found in the private sector in investment firms, for example, who have strategies for their clients to do well, supposedly, even in the downturn. Some have predicted declines that I have read of output between 25 and 50%. Here we are beyond depression into catastrophe. A 25% drop in output, were there not to be a recovery this year or next, would certainly be the start of a Great Depression. But here we have the nub of the matter. These scenarios are not taking into account three systemic possibilities which could push the contraction of the world economy into the upper reaches of that horrifying 25 to 50% contraction range. Firstly, the financial system can be destabilised or even crash. Many people assume that bailouts will continue from central banks and governments, but this will eventually cause its own huge problems. Two, whole countries can financially collapse if international capital totally loses faith in their capacity to repay their debts. In this case, their capacity to save the financial system is quite compromised, obviously. And three, political events interact with the economic in such a manner as to cause the financial crash and further exacerbate the Great Global Depression. The Financial Times is one of the most respectable financial newspapers in the world. Its advice and coverage are widely admired. It is the preferred newspaper of the financial sector. It is not known for wild and radical statements. In yesterday's edition, April the 17th, 2020, there is a full-scale interview with the French President Macron a great supporter of the unity of the European Union. His very words are that we have to think the unthinkable and he warns of the collapse of the European Union as a political project unless it supports stricken economies such as Italy and helps them recover from the coronavirus pandemic. There is also within that edition a five-minute video by Martin Wolf one of the world's most respected financial journalists, in which he outlines the strong possibility of drops in world output in all the major economies, 
of between 15 and 30%, unless the virus is almost immediately brought under control. If it's not, the consequences are devastating, worse than the 1930s, especially for the developing world. There will be huge political consequences and threats to our democracies, he assures us, and I agree with him. China, incidentally, has now a reduction of its GDP year to year of almost 7%. This is the first move into negative territory of its GDP in 40 years. No one is now under any doubt that the pandemic has very quickly become an economic crisis of major proportions. However, the economic and financial dimensions may very likely interact. And here we are definitely into a calamity of our own making. For it has been the inability of the governments of the advanced economies to prevent the increasing financialization of the economy and government. And this will contribute heavily to the coming events. This financialization is the domination of the economy and the domination of government by the finance sector. The financial sector should have been reined in very firmly after 2007-8, instead of being given enormous handouts, cheap money, low interest rates and the like. Governments have created a Frankenstein monster. The other distinct possibility is the interaction between the economic and financial sector and the other horsemen of the apocalypse, so to speak. So the pessimistic scenario could look like this. Many countries do not contain the virus at all. And there is a severe peak of the pandemic in the later part of 2020. Devastation hits many countries as their health systems are overwhelmed. Other countries engage in martial law, social suppression and control. The enormous stimulus measures of some governments and central banks are ineffective since their economies are collapsing anyway. Hyperinflation sets in and paper money becomes worthless. Global GDP has an unprecedented crash. Social disturbance and criminal activity become rife. Some countries react by movements to the right. The unreformed and still very vulnerable European banking sector crashes, provoking systemic widespread global banking collapse. Gold prices go through the roof. Subsequently, the Eurozone disintegrates. China also enters into a depression as its exports plummet. However, it retains order and control and engages in a survival strategy. Globalisation disappears. Trade is reduced enormously. Authoritarian regimes are the ones most likely to survive. Democracies become scarce. America accelerates its decline if it continues with its leadership crisis and political divisions. The global financial system collapses, meaning banking services as we know them cease. This also means that the monetary system is likely to collapse. Fascism once again emerges and there is a movement to wars in many parts of the globe. A realignment of world power takes place. Nuclear conflict occurs in some parts of the globe leaving the world and its population now traumatised and panicked in a very precarious position and ready to move in almost any political direction. Now I am horrified by contemplating this, but it can happen. One of the extraordinary things about it is that the virus detonates a structure 
that was really unfit for purpose. Not just unfit to face emergencies, but unable to adapt harmoniously to the planet. Unable to control its ferociously destructive economic system and the monstrously distorted financial sector it has created. Unable to control its wars and aggressions. We are a species that actually creates religions that hate other religions. A world that is split into hundreds of separate countries, each arrogantly believing they have the right to do as they wish, separate from the rest of the earth. In the very near future, we'll witness two contrary trends. On the one hand, the breakup of some large economic and political units, such as the European Union, the individual breakaway countries of which will triumph their archaic autonomies, rejoice in their separate languages and dance their tribal rights. On the other, movements towards larger political units through war and takeover. I am reminded of the early 19th century, when Napoleon swept through the semi-feudal states of Europe with wars, reforms and a new world vision. Remember that even Beethoven was taken in by the Napoleonic heroic vision for a while, that is, until he crowned himself emperor. New Napoleons will arise in the coming period that will champion world unity, world government, the ending of the nation-states, and billions of people will follow this once they are sufficiently traumatised and motivated by a new vision that gives them hope. This assumes, of course, that there will be sufficient survivors of the times to come. But those that do survive will be prepared to accept a very different world. Now, of course, it's possible, if the virus is controlled, we don't get this far down the road of the apocalypse. But a reckoning will come at some point, particularly if we return to this absurd idea of the normal, business as usual. This virus is a warning of things to come. Unless we change fundamentally, we are doomed. The Quest podcast do use the vocabulary and concepts of science and reason. However, what deeply informs its philosophy is a visionary position. A vision, although it is highly subjective, is experienced as revelatory, as if with the force and impress of a higher intelligence outside of one. Once experienced, it can possess the subject with a conviction which feels of a higher order. I felt compelled to translate my vision into a book, A Sower and the Seed, published in 2015. My original visionary experience reorientated me to a metaphysical and philosophical position that I could no longer deny. In a previous podcast, Season 2, Episode 14, I gave a brief account of this experience. I mention it again for the following reasons. I'm convinced that the world can argue the pros and cons of climate change, economic depressions, political disasters, and so on, till the end of time without achieving clarity. As George Bernard Shaw said, you can put all the economists in the world end to end, but they'd never reach a conclusion. What is needed is vision and conviction. Reason alone does not give us the vision to fundamentally change ourselves in this world. I have no doubt at all of just how difficult fundamental change is for us, individually and collectively. The odds are stacked heavily against us, 
Our shadow is so dark. Our rapacious exploitation of the earth so brutal. Our treatment of other human beings throughout the course of history so awful. Our capacity to kill so extensive. It makes one wonder at times if we even deserve to live. The individual and the collective have some similarities, however, with respect to these issues. It has been my experience that deep change in individuals is affected through an honest encounter with their sufferings and traumas, which are embedded in their psyche. Reasoning, normal analytic consciousness or logic cannot shift the deep material, although they have their place for strategy and solutions-focused therapies. In the collective, society at large, with its political, economic and social structures, solution-based strategies are continually sought in order to deal with problems. However, when it comes to the deep roots of malaise in our culture, for example its alienation, the breakdown of social structure such as families, the increasing prevalence of addictions, pornography and gambling, the inbuilt tendency to economic crises, the tendency to war and so on, such strategies are found wanting and one needs an overall vision and moral structure to see one's way through the morass. However, the vision that I experienced in 2013 was that transformation was just possible, but the human race would pass through deep trauma and then a chance might emerge. The potential transformation would necessarily have deep spiritual elements informing it throughout, and reason and science would be subordinate to that vision. There is no guarantee of outcome of this process. There is no inevitable happy ending. The human race has no guiding angels or gods that necessarily see them through this. It does, however, have immense help if visionary material is accessed once the spiritual eyes opened then transformation is possible a renewed personal and world vision may occur there is a narrow door of opportunity the quest is committed to that possibility the difficult material has to be encountered so this opportunity arises no matter how dark the vision is at times it is the light of the transformation possibility that is the raison d'etre of the quest series. The following podcasts will explore the spiritual and psychological dimensions of our times. In them, I shall argue that it is impossible to comprehend the current evolving crises unless one truly grasps the reality of the opposite forces of light and dark, which are embedded in the very nature of our consciousness and are archetypal, universal throughout our evolution. With reference to our own times, it is not possible to understand what is going on unless one can see, in my opinion, the demonic and even sometimes the satanic, the life-destroying force within our psyche and the systems we create. I hope you can join me for these coming podcasts. <laughs>